This morning's New Testament reading comes from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institute, institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we um, come to you this morning and we praise you that you're a God who is not silent, um, that you're a God who has spoken to us and you've spoken most clearly to us in your word. We thank you that your word shows us that um, you love us and you want us to know you. Um, Thank you for this truth. Father, your son Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth and that your word is the truth. And Father, your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so sometimes we come to your word and we might even scratch our head and we might even think that we don't like at first what we hear. And so I pray that you would humble us this morning um, before your word, that you would make us wise because of it, that you would increase our love of you and our neighbor. Um, after hearing your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so a couple weeks ago at the Udodge house, we had a, we had a movie night. And um, I don't know how this goes, maybe in your home or with your friends when you're trying to decide on a movie. Everyone has a different idea of what they want to watch. And my go-to, so when this happens, I usually suggest, especially with my kids, I suggest movies that I liked as a kid. I kind of want to show them um, the old movies that I loved. And so this particular night, 
we settled on the Karate Kid. Not the remake of the Karate Kid. I don't know how many remakes there have been, but I'm talking about the original Karate Kid. And if you haven't seen this yet, um, a few spoilers along the way. It came out in 1984, so it's your fault. Uh, You can go watch it. Uh, So this is the story of of a kid named Daniel LaRusso, um, whose single mom has moved him from New Jersey, I believe, to Los Angeles. So all the way across the country. So he shows up in this huge intimidating city, and he is quite literally um, an exile and an alien. He knows nobody, and it's not very long until Daniel is, he's picked on and he's bullied, and he's bullied specifically by the members of the Cobra Kai Karate Dojo. Now, when I was growing up, Cobra Kai was sort of like, it was synonymous with like Taliban and Al-Qaeda, right? I mean, these were the evil ones. And one night, the Cobra Kai, on their motorcycles, of course, corner Daniel, and they just begin to beat him to a pulp. And then out of nowhere, at the last minute, somebody jumps in and rescues him. It's Mr. Miyagi. He's the maintenance man at Daniel's um, apartment complex. And Mr. Miyagi, you've already been introduced to him at this point in the movie, And you think, this is just an old, small man. What could he possibly do? But he happens to be this karate guru. And so Daniel seeks him out, and Daniel wants to um, be taught in the ways and the art of self-defense. And as the story goes, and most of you know, what happens next is kind of baffling and kind of confusing to Daniel. Because Mr. Miyagi begins to tell him, I want you to wash all of my cars, and he has many of them. And then I want you to wax all of my cars, wax on and wax off. And I want you to sand the deck, and I want you to paint the fence. I want you to stand in the waves of the ocean on, on one leg and not get pushed over. And all of this doesn't seem to make any sense to Daniel. This seems like a waste of time. He wants to know how to fight. That's it. And what you begin to understand is that Mr. Miyagi um, is teaching this young man something far greater. He's teaching him how to respond to the external things in the world that baffle him. See, Daniel just wants to fight back, but Mr. Miyagi, what we start to discover is that he has wisdom, and that wisdom has come through his own hardship, and it's come through his own suffering, and now he's passing it on to this young man. And I can barely get these words out of my mouth, but I think Peter is the Mr. Miyagi of the New Testament. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry for saying that. But that's, he, Peter, if you know anything about him, and you do if you've been here, because we've seen much of his life in John's gospel, is that Peter was was hot-headed. He was quick-tempered. He was ready to fight at the drop of a pin. And now we have this man who has encountered the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus. And he has lived through suffering and he has lived through hardship. And now he's telling these young Christians how they might now respond to the world around them in a world that might be hostile to them and a world that might not understand them. And so he was telling that to those early Christians, but this morning he's telling that to us. You might feel in some ways like what Peter describes us as Christians as, as sojourners. 
Um, You might, at times in your life, you might feel like an alien. You might feel that way in your job because maybe you believe things that the rest of your coworkers don't believe. And maybe there's a sense in which you're looked at strangely for that. How do we respond to the world around us? That's a huge question. That's a very big question, and we're just going to scratch the surface of it this morning. And I think Peter's instruction, it really feels a bit, if you, when you heard it read, when you heard Kelsey read it, it might have felt a little bit like Mr. Miyagi. That you're scratching your head and you're thinking, and I'm sure that these first century Christians were thinking the same thing. This is really the way that we're supposed to respond to the world around us. This is not necessarily what I want to hear, because it might feel a little too tame. Or it might, to some of us, it might feel weak. And I've even heard Christians, as they talk about this passage, sometimes saying, I don't like what this says. Well, welcome to the Bible. Sometimes it says things that we don't like. But I want to remind you on the front end that the whole New Testament and shows us, and, and Jesus in his person and his work explicitly shows us that it is only those who have been given strength from somewhere else who are able to make themselves weak for the sake of others. And Jesus says that what he promises to do is he's going to use the weak in order to shame the strong. And so when the Bible talks about how Christians are to live in the world, it doesn't talk about the things that we might want to hear. It doesn't talk about Um, our own personal success. It doesn't talk about our own political victories. It doesn't talk about the fact that we might somehow reach a prominent place in culture. In fact, most Christians in most nations throughout the history of the church have been on some of the lowest rungs of culture. And instead, it says this, that one of the most radical ways the Christians engage the world is by so rooting themselves in the love of Christ that they are then able to give themselves away. That they are able in the midst of a world that might be dark and might be threatening and might be violent and might be hostile, that they are able to do what Jesus instructed us to do, is to love even our enemies and to pray even for those who persecute us. Jesus himself said, If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you seek to save your life, then you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospels, then you will find it. And I think that there's everyone here to a person wants to find life. But what does that look like? So this morning, what I want us to see is how I want us, hopefully, as we leave here to see that this passage and what Peter's instructing us in is beautiful and it is absolutely revolutionary because it's asking us to simply accept the position that we have as the people of God and to rest in that, to understand that, to know that, and to see that Jesus is absolutely everything for us. And so that tells us then how we might respond to the world. And these are the three things that Peter really picks up on in this passage. These are, this is the Mr. Miyagi moment because we say, how do we, how do we engage the world? And maybe some Christians want to fight. 
Maybe some Christians want to just gain political power. Maybe some Christians just want to imitate the culture of the world. And this is what Peter, this is how he instructs these early Christians. He gives them three tools in their toolbox, and they are all words that we probably don't like right away. Obedience, submission, and suffering. Welcome to church. (laughs) I don't write this. This is Peter writing through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but I think that there is absolute wisdom and beauty here, obedience, submission, and suffering. So let's look at those three things um, this morning, and let's start with verses 11 and 12, and he doesn't use the word actually obedience, he uses the word conduct, but you understand what I mean is that it's not necessarily one of our favorite topics, and I think that for some of you here this morning, and let me pause and say this, as you sit in church, and maybe you're new in church, or maybe you're just coming back to church, one of the reasons that you may not like the word obedience is because you may have grown up in a church that all it did was wag its finger at you for not behaving the way that they thought you should behave. And what you began, and what you did not hear about very, very often maybe, is the radical, wonderful untamable grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that sought you and pursued you and has loved you not when you were good, but when you were bad. And so maybe you began to think and you hear the word conduct or you hear the word obedience and you think, yeah, that's right. This is what we do at church. We tell people that they need to shape up because the church is a place for good people who do good stuff. And that means that God loves those good people who do good stuff. That is not what Peter is saying. In fact, Peter starts this passage, he starts this exhortation by by reaffirming to them what he has just been going to wonderful lengths to explain to them. And this is what we talked about the entire time last time, is that he starts by reminding them of their status. How does he do that? He starts with this one word, beloved. Beloved. You are beloved. You are not beloved because you are already good. You are not beloved because you have somehow, through your own merit, earned God's favor. You are beloved because God says you are beloved and because you are united with his son, Jesus Christ. He reminds them of their status. He says they are beloved by God. And as a result, because they are beloved by God, he says this, that that means that they are sojourners and they are exiles in the world. And Peter's just acknowledging the fact that because you might be beloved by God and you belong to God and you're part of his household, the world, largely which has rebelled against God and doesn't love God, may not love you as well. You may feel like an exile. It means this. It means that this world, as it currently exists, as it currently exists, is not your true home. He said just a few verses earlier that we looked at last week that you're a people who have been brought out of darkness and into light. Why? So that you might just hang out with people who are only in the light. No. So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. This is the reason that God has called us out of darkness and into light, so that we might now be light in the world. And this is what Peter is telling us how to do that, what that looks like. Because being an exile in the world simply means that you find your entire value and your entire identity and your entire worth elsewhere. It is in Jesus. 
This place, this world does not define who you are. That is radical freedom for those of us who understand it. That this world and what I do and what I haven't done and how smart I am or how thin I am or how beautiful I am or how successful I am or what color I am does not define who I am. Jesus defines who I am. And Jesus says, you are my beloved. And so knowing that, knowing your status in Christ, which he's already gone through great lengths to to explain to us that you are his beloved is exactly what helps you now to abstain, he says, from the passions that wage war against your soul. Those are some strong words, right? That Peter says that there are passions that are now waging war against your soul, that there are passions that want to rob your soul of this good news. What are those passions? I could explain this in a whole lot of different ways, but this morning, let me just explain it in line with this logic of what your status is, is that these passions are the things that compete for your love. They compete for your love. Remember, you are God's beloved, and so the passions of the flesh that tell you things are things that tell you that something else will make you beloved. Let me say that again. The passions of the flesh are things that tell you that something else will make you beloved. And many of us know this tension really well. I know this tension, let me tell you, really well. The struggle to believe that we are God's treasure and not to fall prey to the voices of shame and doubt that then drive us into places to find some sort of security, some sort of leg to stand on, because what we desperately want is to feel as if we're beloved. Those tensions are at war, Peter says, within us, and he wants us to know that, that they're at war within us. Some of us woke up with those tensions this morning. Some of us are are here, maybe at church this morning, because we feel those tensions, and we're maybe exhausted by um, the things that are that are clamoring for our attention that, that, that we feel we're trying to juggle all these balls because what we desperately want to be is beloved. And, and Peter's saying, listen, you can settle down. You already are. But there's going to be things that are going to wage war against your soul that are going to tell you that if you are this or you look like this or you do this, that's the true thing that will make you one who is loved. So the passions of the flesh are not just this like list of things that we normally think of. Um, It's not just that. It's not just um, the passions of the flesh are like drugs and pornography and stealing. And we're like, okay, I'm going to stay away from this. But it's, it's, it's not just that. It's not less than that either. Think about it this way. What might wage war against your soul? It might be, it might be the world's definition of beauty. You might wake up with the tension of that every morning when you look in the mirror and it might wage war against your soul and you might begin to think, I could not possibly be beloved unless I looked like this. And as you scroll through Instagram, it feeds um, this envy and this shame and this doubt. It might be the, the passions, the ways of war against our soul, it might be this deep pressure to simply justify my existence and my worthiness through what I accomplish. It might be pride. 
It might be greed. It might be anger. It might be the very thing, and this is where it gets tricky, it might be the very thing that we're most proud of. And so when we, when we kind of say the passions of the flesh are these things like, well, they're the, the baddie things, you know, that I know that I'm supposed to stay away from because I grew up in the church and they told me not to do these things. We might miss the fact that some of the passions that wage war against our, our soul are the very things that some people have congratulated us for our entire life, like our workaholism. Aren't you such a hard worker? And it just began to feed this thing in us. As long as I'm a hard worker, I will be beloved. Peter says, no. You already are. And it's not because of anything that you've done or you haven't done. It's because God has decided to love you. There's another movie that came out. This one's a little bit newer, but still over 20 years old in the 90s. And it's been so long since I've seen it that I can't say that I recommend it to you. So don't go and watch it and say that I recommended it to you. It is called The Devil's Advocate. The Devil's Advocate starred um, Keanu Reeves. Where is he, by the way? Keanu Reeves, what happened to him? And Al Pacino, where is he? I think he just got old. Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino. And Keanu Reeves was this very savvy lawyer. And he um, defended, he began to defend some of the, the worst criminals. And there was this one client that he has who has committed this heinous crime, and Keanu Reeves knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man is guilty. And so there's a scene before he goes into the courtroom to defend this client where he's looking in the mirror and he's wrestling with himself, should I defend this guy or not? I know that he's guilty. And he decides to go and defend him. And he goes into the courtroom and brilliantly defends him and gets him acquitted. And he becomes famous for this, so much so that there's this prestigious law firm in town that pursues him and picks him up. And the head of this law firm is played by Al Pacino, whose character's name is John Milton. And in the movie, he is literally the devil. He's the devil. I'm not going to give any knocks on lawyers this morning. Uh, Some of my favorite people. But he's played, this lawyer is played by the devil. He is actually the devil, and he recruits this man, and he begins to employ him through defending some of the worst criminals that are purely guilty. And Keanu Reeves does it brilliantly. And as he does it, he begins to fall more and more into bodily sins, and you watch this happen throughout the movie until finally he loses his soul. But then right at the end of the movie, it flashes back. It flashes back to that moment where he's in the bathroom and he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's wondering, do I defend him or do I not defend him? And this time he says, yes, I'm going to do the right thing now. And he marches back into the courtroom and he says, judge, I may be disbarred for this, but I cannot defend this man because I know that he is guilty and I will not defend him for the crime that he has committed. And everyone cheers. And as he's leaving the courtroom, he's mobbed by reporters and this one reporter comes up to him and he says to him, you sir are a hero and we are going to tell all the world of the good that you have done. And Keanu Reeves says, well that sounds wonderful. 
And as he's walking away from this reporter, you see that the reporter's face sort of morphs into that of Al Pacino, the devil. And he says, ah, vanity, my favorite sin of all. And so you can take the route as the passions of the flesh, what is blatantly immoral or sometimes, and this is why it's tricky, it can be the thing that is very moral. But what matters is what's going on in our heart. And what Peter is saying to the Christians is that you will look different from the world because you are no longer looking to the world to give you what Christ has already given you. This is why he spends so much time. This is why we spent so much time last week just reasserting who you now are in Christ. It's because what he's saying is you don't need anymore the vanity of the world. This is what the world will notice. It's a community of people who are not in bondage to the world's definitions of worthiness. And this is actually what Peter is saying, God's method for making his name great in the world. It's a strange tool in the toolbox. It's a beautiful tool. And what I want to ask you as we think about that obedience this morning is just these questions of does, does my house and does my life and to the way that I operate, does it look any different than the rest of the world? Not just in what's absent, but what is present. Does it look different? Because obedience means that you play by the rules of the, ones who, the one who loves you and adores you and has pursued you so that you no longer have to play by the rules of the world. And that segues into the second tool, a word that we really... Um, maybe tremble at and, and don't like, it's this word submission or, or be subject. In verses 13 through 17, this is what, what Peter is saying is this, and follow his logic because it's going to continue on throughout this book, is that your status in Christ sets you free from the bondage of the world's rules. It also frees you from becoming obsessed over who is currently in power over you. Now that's a tough one to swallow. Look at how crazy and how foreign these words seem in comparison to Christianity in America today. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, I've covered this before, but let me say it again. Is that those who were in power when Peter was writing this letter were not exactly, to put it mildly, friendly to Christianity. They were outright hostile to Christianity. And so no matter what your political stance is here this morning, um, we have to understand that we live in a culture that is actually pretty accommodating to our beliefs as Christians. But these these people lived in a time, and the Depending on exactly when Peter wrote this, what we believe is either Nero was in power or Nero was about to be in power. And Nero was a wicked, wicked emperor. Nero kicked his own pregnant wife to death. Nero massacred Christians. I won't go into the details. You can go and read them if you want. Nero was incredibly wicked. And... and, and, Here's the thought, Peter, how do we engage that? What do we do with that? Do we simply need to get our man in power, our woman in power? Peter says this, and this is baffling. 
and beautiful and wonderful. He says, you engage it as free people. As free people. Because you are free. What does that mean? As people, this is what he means, as people who answer to the one chiefly who rules over every single molecule in the universe. You belong to him. He is who you ultimately answer to. You see, when the one who rules over all things calls you his beloved, Peter says you can trust him because that is the very definition of freedom. And so the government, any government can grant a person all the freedom in the world and that freedom might still, that person might still be in bondage. But the one who belongs to Jesus can be under some of the most oppressive governments and many Christians have been in the past and there are many in heaven who will testify to this that they can be under the most horrific oppression and they could still be free. Is that to justify those governments' oppressions? Absolutely not. Does the Bible tell you to simply roll over against injustice? Absolutely not. There are many examples of Christians who have honored authority and yet have spoken against it. That's a difficult task to do. Take it, take it one step further in verse 18. Peter addresses servants. And in some translations, um, this even says slaves. And what we have to know is that this isn't the type of slavery that we think about in America. Um, that many of these in this, in this um, context were actually more like indentured servants that they may have to pay off a debt by putting themselves as a servant of somebody else until they paid their debt off and were freed. But what we do know is that there are many Christians or people who called themselves Christians in our context, in our country, who used this passage in order to um, oppress those who were already oppressed. Is that a reason to reject this passage? No, it's a, re- it's a reason to reject that horrible theology, right? That there, there, there are those, that there is actually accounts of, of some who would gather slaves and preach to them and they would only preach um, a passage like this and say, you need to be subject to us whether we are just or unjust. That is not what Peter is getting at. Peter is talking to those who are, who are already on the bottom and he's telling them, how to act. This is not addressed as as a scapegoat for those who are unjust. The rest of scripture denounces that completely. And so what is he saying? Peter is saying that you're being subject to those in authority over you is actually evidence of the fact that you trust in a God who is over that authority and you are actually a free person. It's only one, remember I said at the beginning, it's only one who has strength that has been given them from elsewhere that is able to make themselves weak so that they might even win over the person who is acting unjustly. Can we honestly ask ourselves if we, if we actually believe the gospel to such an extent that we're willing at certain times to lay down our rights out of love for people who don't know Jesus? If you, want, if, if you want to be radical, that is radical. That is otherworldly. Peter is saying that is what will cause people to look at you and go, from what planet are you from? Because everyone else I know is fighting to be on top. 
is fighting to put other people underneath them, how can you be at peace? Honor everyone, Peter says. Honor, this is, this is what Christians believe, is that we are to honor everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. But lastly, it just gets better. Lastly, he says that when that happens, there's going to be times that you are going to suffer. But here's the thing, that Jesus uses our suffering, even our suffering for doing good, he uses it for his glory, and he uses it to make his name great. You may suffer at the hand of, of a boss who is unjust or just plain mean. You might suffer from a roommate. You might suffer one day at the hands of a government um, that seeks to oppress you for what you believe. I don't know. What Peter is saying, he says, is this. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is gracious to God. Why? You might be sitting here thinking, my whole life is ordered around avoiding any type of suffering possible. This is not the tool in the toolbox that I want. How can I possibly believe this? Well, he tells you in the last four verses of this passage, he uses Jesus as an example of this. Jesus. And this is what he says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The only one who ever walked the earth, who deserved to be treated with all honor and all praise was despised, was abused and was killed. And Jesus himself said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And unto God, what is God's? Knowing that Caesar would later have him executed. And he himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life a ransom for many. And he did this, how? By continuing, and we see Jesus doing this all throughout the Gospels. That Jesus continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Friends, we are not called to make something out of our life. God already thinks our life is beautiful. He already loves us in Christ. We are called to trust God with the life that he has given us. To walk in the steps of Jesus, to obey him, to know that my status in Christ is one who is beloved. Not to roll over and play dead. To stand up for injustice, of course. To stand up to those who are oppressing? Absolutely. And we talk about that all the time. But the way that we do that and the strength that we have to do that, this is what Peter is talking about in this passage. I'm going to leave 
end with a, a story. I'm not leaving yet. I'm going to end with a story this morning from a pastor named Joe Novitson. Um, he's a pastor in Tennessee in Lookout Mountain Press. And I heard him tell this story a, a while back um, after he had taken a trip to India. And he was traveling around in India and preaching in different um, contexts. And he had a guide for that trip. And the guide's name was P.T. Chanda. And he said that, that P.T. Chanda was the, um, he was the vicar general for St. Thomas Evangelical Free Church in India. And he said he was a man who possessed maybe four possessions. And he had a passionate love of the gospel. And they got into a discussion one night um, about scripture. And he and Chanda were, were reading a, a passage from 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and Chanda asked Joe to read the verse out loud, and so Joe started to read it, and he said, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And Chanda stopped him, and he asked, he said, Joe, do you preach Christ? And Joe said, Yes, Chanda, I think that I do. And he said, Read the rest of the verse, Joe. And he began to read, and we preach ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And Chanda said, Joe, do you preach yourself as a servant? And Joe said, no, Chanda, I don't think that I do. And Chanda responded in this way. He said, no one in America wants to be a servant. You all want to be leaders. You especially don't want to be a servant to people in a church like Corinth. They were sexually immoral bickers. They had received God's revelation through tongues and they had soiled it. Yet Paul preached himself as a servant. Let me tell you a secret, Joe. Go to the back of the line. You won't find many Christians in that position. They are all clamoring for the front of the line. But you will find Christ there and people of little reputation. Go to the, go find the back of your culture's line and go there. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, Jesus. We thank you that that is where he found um, each and every one of us, is that he went to the lowest places to lift us up, that he became rich. I mean, he became poor so that we might become rich. And Father, I pray that um, you would, first and foremost, that you would secure us in the status that we now have in Christ, that we would help, you would help us to know it and believe it, that we would preach it to ourselves and that we would preach it to one another. And we pray that that would allow us um, to give ourselves away for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of the world, um, for the sake, even as Jesus tells us, um, of our enemy. Father, we, we thank you that Jesus did that for us. Um, we pray that you would give us the grace, the ability to do it, for those around us. We ask this in his name. Amen.